As our First Testament reading tonight from Joshua was being read, you might have thought to yourself, that sounds familiar. Moses miraculously led people through the sea on dry ground, and today we have this kind of repeated miracle. Only this time it's not Moses who is leading the people, but it's Joshua who is leading the people. And there's a clear reason why the miracle is very similar to the one that the people experienced with Moses. Israel now has a new leader, and so the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And so God is intent on exalting Joshua and therefore wants the people to know that just as the power of God was at work through Moses, so now it is at work through Moses' replacement, Moses' successor, Joshua. He wants to exalt him, but what exactly does exaltation look like in our text? One of the first things to notice is that the Ark of the Covenant, which was the representation and the manifestation of God's presence, and not Joshua, leads away. He leads, but his leadership happens precisely by ensuring that both he and the people first and foremost follow God and not him. As Hebrew scholar Helen Dallaire points out, the ark is actually mentioned six times in this chapter. Therefore, the repetition suggests that the focus of crossing is not meant to be on the event, but on God's presence in the midst of his people during an expedition that would change their lives forever. And so even though Joshua is being exalted, it is God and not Joshua who takes center stage in this story. And so the thing to notice right off the bat is that to be called to be a leader by God, this must always be the case. That the leader, even if she or he stands on a stage, must learn to get out of the way so that God remains the subject and not the object. Because it is God who exalts leaders, and therefore it is ultimately upon God which our eyes must remain. But still, Joshua is being exalted in front of the people as the one who's to lead them by following God. So where is it that God instructs the people through Joshua to go? Well, where they're to go is to Jordan, and we are told that they are to cross the Jordan during flood stage. And this is not an accidental, uh, incidental kind of little thing in the text. During flood stage, and other times of the year, it may have been possible to cross, you know, cross over. But during flood stage, it remained virtually impossible to cross over that time of the year. Only if God provides a miracle can the people cross over. And this is important for us to remember. Um, that the thing is that, that the thing that God wants to do 
in our midst can only truly be accomplished by God. We often refer to the liturgy as the work of the people, and there's a sense in which this is right, but at a deeper level, what, what the work of the people is, is actually the work of God through the work of the people. That's the deeper understanding of liturgy. And so while we have, and these people have a leader, they are to follow that leader only as that leader follows God. The ark always goes first. And so the head toward the Jordan. What's interesting, though, is in Hebrew, if you, if you look at the root from where the word Jordan comes from, it means to go down. And there's a, a geographical reason for this. Uh, again, Helen uh, explains East of Jericho, the Jordan River is more than 1,000 feet below sea level. And so whether one comes from Moab or from Canaan, one must go down in order to reach the river, the Jordan River. That is a geographical reason, but I I think there is a theological reason uh, at play here too. In the chapter about Joshua being exalted, not only does God take center stage and lead the people, but the exaltation only happens by Joshua going down. Not by going up, but by taking the people and saying, we will make this descent. And his exaltation is in his descent. So our our gospel reading today is interesting because right at the first verse, Jesus locates the scribes and the Pharisees in a particular place. It says this, that Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And so now if you're looking at Joshua and you're looking at our gospel reading, we are now getting the theme of Moses' successors twice. Joshua is to be the person who replaces Moses in our First Testament reading, while in our gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees are to sit on Moses' seat, and they are now to teach the ways of Moses. Now, unlike teachers in our time, I'm standing right now, but teachers during this time period would sit. And so to sit on Moses' seat is a way of saying that they are the interpreters of Torah, also known as the books of Moses. And so they were to carry on Moses' teaching. They were to carry on Moses' leadership. But while they sat and while they taught in the seat of Moses, Jesus says a fascinating and troubling, if we're honest, thing about them. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. They love being called rabbi by other people. So fascinatingly, Jesus actually says, listen to their teaching. Like the, the things they're teaching are actually good, but do not listen to their lives. 
because what they teach and what they live are out of sync with each other. They preach great sermons, their theology books are well-written, but their inner lives are a mess, and they are a mess precisely because they do not allow themselves to do the things that they teach others to do. Now, as I meditated on this text, I was really fascinated by the language, particularly since we know that they sit on Moses' seat, that Jesus used to describe the situation. Look at this. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of the people, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Okay, so if we are thinking Moses' time, who is it? that lays heavy burdens, unbearable burdens, on, on the shoulders of the people. Yeah, talk to me, somebody. Who, who is the one responsible for laying the burdens on the people? Pharaoh. And I can't help but notice that Jesus is using language that describes the way of Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh who burdened the people, with burdens too hard for them to carry on their shoulders. And so what we have are leaders who sit in the seat of Moses, but have the heart of Pharaoh. They sit in the seat of Moses, but they enact not the way of Moses and certainly not the way of Jesus, but the way of Pharaoh, which results their teaching leads not to further freedom, but actually to further bondage. Well, Jesus goes on to talk about how they love to be uh, at the center of everything. They love seats of honor. They love honorific titles. They love recognition. And, and so at the end of our text, Jesus says this fascinating thing. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And notice that word exalted appears again, just like it was in Joshua. God exalted Joshua, but did so by leading Joshua downward and having Joshua keep God front and center. How different with these religious leaders. These people loved their places of honor. They loved the seed of Moses, but they refused to come down from the seed of Moses in order to serve the people. They loved the high places and they sought them out, but ironically, their refusal to come down was the very thing that kept them from being exalted in the sight of God. And let us never forget that our God is a God who comes down. Descent is the way of God. And so we come to our Thessalonians text. And now we can notice the sharp contrast between how Jesus describes the scribes and the Pharisees and how uh, the apostles described the nature of their ministry amongst the, amongst the Thessalonians. Uh, our election begins at a certain point, but if you back up just a little bit, they describe themselves first like nursing mothers who take care of their children. 
This is, this is our ministry to you. We, we came to you like nursing mothers. And our reading picks up here. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. The apostles say, we came to you and we proclaimed the gospel of God. They said, in other words, in the seat of the teacher. But the reason that the gospel of God was so powerfully received amongst the Thessalonians is because they came down from their seat in order not to be a burden to anyone while they preached the gospel of God. Their teaching... And their lives lined up. And this is the very thing that they were asking of the people that they were ministering to. Which is precisely why they said, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who called you into his own kingdom and glory. And what's the result? It's this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Because they knew how to go low, how to renounce the way of Pharaoh while teaching the gospel of God. They were able, on the one hand, to get out of the way so that God could do God's work. And on the other hand, to be in the thick of the community and therefore truly reflect the things that they were teaching and reflect the humility of God. Do you know that God is humble? And this is what they were to reflect to the people. And this, sisters and brothers, is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It is important to be taught. And theology is important. And we should be the kind of people who commit ourselves to having open minds and open hearts, willing to be theologically challenged, theologically changed if need be. But even our theology or our ministry in general can lead to a kind of striving for recognition. It can be a means of trying to exalt ourselves or to find our identity in what we do rather than in who we worship. And the truth is, the world does tell us that if we don't make our lives count, if we don't have enough you know, followers or a best-selling book or have the article published or at the top of our careers or are able to reinvent ourselves, that we are nothing. And when we believe that, we live according to that way and we 
end up running over people in order to make sure that we get noticed. And even if we are teaching all the right things, we can end up enacting the way of Pharaoh even while sitting in the seat of Moses. But there is another way. As I was uh, working through this message this week and talking about it with Marissa, she handed me this stunning passage from uh, Hannah Hernand's classic book, Hind's Feet in High Places. And in the book, there's this orphan girl who is known, uh, she's called Much Afraid. And she's taken on a pilgrimage of sorts by Chief Shepherd of the village. And, and Shepherd is taking her up to high places in order that she will be healed by love once she gets there. Notice already, though, that she is being taken there by Shepherd. She is being exalted by Shepherd. She is not clawing her way up by herself. Well, much afraid is still in the valley, and she has this kind of amazing thought about flowers, beautiful flowers that remain largely unseen by people. And she says this, I often wonder about the wild flowers. It does seem strange that such unnumbered multitudes should bloom in the wild places of the earth where perhaps nobody ever sees them and goats and cattle can walk over them and crush them to death. They have so much beauty and sweetness to give and no one on whom to lavish it, no, nor, will, uh, nor who will ever appreciate it. It's a fascinating observation if you think about it. Well, the look of the shepherd, the look the shepherd turned on her was very beautiful. Nothing my father and I have ever made is ever wasted, he said quietly. And the little wild flowers have a wonderful lesson to teach. They offer themselves so sweetly and confidently and willingly, even if it seems that there is no one to appreciate them. And after this, the shepherd says this, I must tell you a great truth, much afraid, which only the few understand. All the fairest beauties in the human world, its greatest victories and its most splendid achievements are always those which no one knows anything about or can only dimly guess at. Every inner response of the human heart to love and every conquest over self-love is a new flower on the tree of love. And he continues, many a quiet, ordinary, and hidden life, unknown to the world, is a veritable garden in which love's flowers and fruits have come to such perfection that it is a place of delight where the king of love himself walks and rejoices with his friends. Some of my servants have indeed one great visible victories and are rightly loved and revered by other men. But always, but always, 
Their greatest victories are like the wildflowers, those which no one knows about. Learn this now, down here in the valley, much afraid. And when you get to the steep places of the mountains, it will come for you. What we do not learn in the valley of humility will be our downfall on the mountain. And in a world where people, including very religious people doing very religious things, at least outwardly, are trying to claw themselves to the top, let us be a people who learn that to experience the exaltation of God, both personally but also as a church, we must follow God to the low places where the flowers bloom, though few see them. Let us be a people who keep at the center of all that we do God's presence and follow our humble God down. Let us all souls follow where the spirit leads, humble ourselves before God and each other and find the deep contentment and clarity in the valley that will comfort us when we get to the steep places of the mountains. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now I'm going to get out of the way, and we're going to give a few moments of silence before we are led in the creed so that the Spirit can speak to us in the silence. Amen. Amen.